Do your patients know what presbyopia is? There are people who are afraid of the press. Have you talked to your patients about multifocal contact lenses? I've heard the bifocal, but not right, multifocal. Do you need help with your multifocal strategy? Learn more at the conclusion of this episode. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe MySight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Good morning, I'm Dr. Kerry Gelb and welcome to Open Your Eyes Radio. Please listen as I discuss the newest information in the world of health, nutrition, and sports every Saturday morning, 9 a.m. Central Time on AM 1280, The Patriot. Also, please share your thoughts by emailing me at drkerrygelb at gmail.com. That's D-R-K-E-R-R-Y-G-E-L-B at gmail.com. And visit my website at drkerrygelb.com. Despite conventional advice to lower cholesterol, avoid fat, exercise more, and eat less, cardiovascular disease continues to be the number one killer of Americans. Today's guest, Florida cardiac surgeon and author of Stay Off My Operating Table, Dr. Phil Ovedia. Dr. Ovedia saved himself by reversing his obesity, and he has made it his life's mission to save others and help prevent them from looking up at him while lying on his cardiac operating table. Dr. Ovedia, thank you for joining me today. Great to be here with you, Kerry. And, you know, as you said in your intro, uh, despite all of the measures that we have been taking to uh, that would supposedly, you know, reverse and prevent heart disease, heart disease remains far and away the number one killer uh, and a major source of morbidity uh, for people, not only here in the U.S., but worldwide. And uh, that's why we need to start asking some different questions and thinking about some different approaches uh, to really have a meaningful impact and to help people to avoid heart disease and to stay off my operating table. You know, it's fascinating to speak with a cardiothoracic surgeon. And before we get into cholesterol, I just want to, for people to understand the different types of cardiologists. Uh, what's the difference between a general cardiologist, an interventionalist, and a cardiac surgeon? If you could explain that to our audience. Yeah, sure thing. So, you know, when most people are either diagnosed with heart disease or are concerned that they might have heart disease, they're probably going to start by seeing a general cardiologist. Uh, so this is a physician who has been trained in internal medicine first, uh, with then a specialty in cardiology, uh, focusing on problems of the heart. And they're going to be focused on doing some of the 
you know, diagnostic tests that can help people figure out if they have heart disease, what type of heart disease that they have, and how advanced it might be. And then they're usually going to be uh, managing, you know, heart disease with medications. Um, if the heart disease has progressed enough, uh, if you start having symptoms, if you have a heart attack, uh, you may end up seeing an interventional cardiologist. So the interventional cardiologist is the one that is going to uh, be doing a catheterization typically uh, where they actually go into the heart and um, you know, do some advanced diagnostics, put dye into the arteries, uh, take measurements within the heart uh, to kind of figure out how advanced your heart disease is, and then maybe able to treat it uh, with stents. Uh, and, um, there are other things that come into play, but that's going to be the most common thing that the interventional cardiologist is going to do. And then, uh, you know, in certain situations where stents might not be the best option for dealing with, uh, your heart disease, you might be sent to see, you know, myself or one of my colleagues, the cardiac surgeons, and we're the ones that do the, you know, open heart surgery, as most people think of it. Uh, where, you know, we are uh, in many cases opening up the chest or maybe, you know, we have some minimally invasive approaches uh, to work between the ribs uh, and we're going to be, be doing, you know, bypass surgery, which is the most common uh, surgery that uh, we do. Uh, maybe also dealing with your valves with a valve replacement surgery, uh, another common procedure that cardiac surgeons do. So, you know, it's certainly a team approach. It's a continuum. Uh, but as a cardiac surgeon now for over 20 years, you know, I end up seeing uh, kind of the worst of the worst, the people with the most advanced heart disease. And, uh, you know, that uh, comes with the opportunity to have uh, significant impact, positive impact on people's lives. But, you know, it also carries with it significant risk. Uh, because these are very major surgical procedures that we're doing, often on people who are quite sick. Uh, and one of the things that we'll probably get into in this conversation is that, you know, heart disease doesn't occur in isolation. Uh, there's oftentimes many other things that are uh, going wrong in your body if you have got an advanced heart disease. And these are all things that put people at high risk for major surgeries. You know, when a, when a cardiologist says you have 80% blockage or 90% blockage or 60% blockage, how do they know how much percentage blockage there is? Is that like kind of like an estimate or they could really tell how what percentage blockage there really is? Yeah, so we can tell uh, exactly how much blockage there is with a variety of testing. So uh, just to step back a moment, you know, uh, and frame the conversation, what we're talking about is atherosclerotic heart disease. It's the most common form of heart disease, and it's when plaque builds up in the arteries of the heart. The heart is a muscle, uh, you know, similar to the muscles in your arms and your legs. And um, as a muscle, it requires blood flow, a lot of blood flow uh, to kind of keep it working. Now, the main differentiator between the heart and any other muscle in your body is that your heart doesn't stop. Uh, you know, your arm has periods of rest, uh, your legs, all of your other muscles, you know, you're using them when you're active with that part of your body, but then they, they rest. The heart doesn't rest. It is constantly beating. Uh, 
until it's not, which is obviously not a great situation. Uh, so the heart needs a lot of blood flow, and we have a network of arteries that are actually kind of on the surface of the heart uh, that are getting the blood flow to the muscle of the heart. Um, you know, many people uh, can't really conceptualize uh, that the heart needs its own blood supply because there's always blood flowing through the heart, uh, but the heart can't necessarily use that. And the analogy I give people is it's like the gas tanker carrying, you know, the gas around in the big tank on the back of the truck. But that that truck that's pulling the tank can still run out of gas because it can't use all that that gas that it's carrying around. And the heart is similar. It needs its own network of arteries to actually get the blood flow to the muscle itself. And those arteries can become blocked over time with a process we call atherosclerosis. It's a buildup of plaque. And then that starts to impair, starts to block the blood flow through those blood vessels. So um, when you know, you've been told that you have certain percent of blockage in your arteries, that's usually going to be based on one of two uh, tests. Uh, the cardiac catheterization that I mentioned before, uh, where a invasive uh, interventional cardiologist is going to go through an artery in your wrist or in your groin, typically, feed a catheter uh, into the heart and right near the heart, and then put some dye into those arteries. And now we can actually see those arteries and we can see how narrow they might be. There uh, is a second way of doing this uh, less invasively uh, with a CAT scan called a CT angiogram, a CAT scan angiogram. And this, they're going to put dye in, uh, not into your heart, but through an IV in your arm. And then we can take some pictures with a CAT scan machine and we can see blockages that are developing in these blood vessels. So it's interesting because a number of years ago, a study came out that said that stents really don't save lives or pre prevent people from dying. Although if you talk to a patient who can't breathe and then all of a sudden they have a stent and the next day they could breathe, I would think that they would think that that does save their life. So is that more like prevention of stents or why, why did that study come out? And I'm not sure the thinking there. Yeah. So what that study actually showed is that um, it's really not the percent of blockage that determines whether or not someone will benefit from getting a stent. It's the functional effects of the blockage. And if you are having significantly decreased blood flow, uh, to the point that you're having symptoms, something like chest pain, shortness of breath, or you have a heart attack. And especially if those symptoms are getting worse, uh, these are what we call unstable symptoms. Uh, those are the situations where people benefit from getting a stent. Uh, but in the past, you know, the thinking was once a blockage got to 60% or 70% or 80%, uh, you know, that putting a stent in, in that situation, even if someone wasn't having symptoms, it would have benefits. And those studies um, showed us that that is not the case, uh, that you need to actually have um, functional consequences of the blockage in order for stents to be beneficial. Uh, so 
you know, uh, that's kind of the nuance uh, that came out of those studies. And like I said, prior to those studies, the thinking was, if we saw blockage and it was, let's say, 70%, uh, that there would be benefit to putting a stent in. Uh, now we know that we need to do, you know, sometimes it's obvious that people are having problems related to those stents. Like I said, they're having symptoms like you described, and they those people will get better and will benefit from getting the stent. But if you don't have symptoms, uh, chances are you may not benefit from having a stent. And of course, these procedures themselves have complications that are associated with them. So we don't want to just uh, go doing them sort of uh, without good indications for doing so. You wrote a recent article that there's different symptoms of having a heart attack between men and women. Can you review that so people listening, you know, where maybe with females, the symptoms are a little more subtle, uh, maybe more likely to get shortness of breath and a little more subtle, and they don't realize that they may be having a heart attack. So for the people listening, we want to save lives. So if you could explain that. Sure thing. So, you know, most of us uh, will have heard uh, the typical symptoms of a heart attack, uh, that you get, you know, severe pains in your chest, that those pains go up to your neck or down your arm. Uh, those are really the classical symptoms of having a heart attack. And certainly anyone having those types of symptoms should assume they're having a heart attack and get checked out right away. Uh, but there are other situations where those symptoms don't occur. And this is more common in women than in men. Uh, people with diabetes also um, may not have the typical symptoms. And their symptoms may be more subtle. Uh, some people uh, have more of an indigestion type feeling, you know, kind of in the lower chest and their upper abdomen. Uh, some people are just getting short of breath or they're getting tired more easily. Uh, can be other symptoms of significant blockages. And so, you know, one of the points that I try to make to people is that having a heart attack shouldn't be your first indication that you have heart disease. All too often it is. Uh, and people don't find out that they have heart disease until they have advanced symptoms, until they have a heart attack. Uh, and the unfortunate statistics show us that about 30% of first-time heart attacks are going to be fatal. Um, and you know that person's life can't be saved. But it is exceedingly rare that people have heart attacks um, you know, without a gradual process uh, of blood vessels being blocked, plaques being built up in the blood vessel, inflammation, and most importantly, a, uh, a condition called insulin resistance, which we'll talk about more. And so one of the you know, key parts, one of the messages I tried to get to people is we can figure out early that you're on your path to heart disease if your doctors are doing the right testing for you. And, if, and you, the patient, needs to be advocating for yourself to be getting this testing done because it's really not the mainstream uh, testing that uh, most doctors know to do. You know, I interviewed Chris Kenobi and, you know, he talks about oils and he's a good friend of mine, but he talked about that the first heart attack recorded was around 1912 or something. So before 1900, 
heart attacks, cancer, macular degeneration, which I deal with, were almost non-existent. But, you know, so something has changed from the 1880s to now that people are getting so sick. And that's something we're going to talk about as we go into the podcast. But before we do that, I want to talk about, I want to ask you about, so about one in, uh, about one person every three sec, 33 seconds dies of a heart attack. Uh, is the one in five people who die in the country uh, die of a heart attack. And thing ha things haven't been changing very much over the years. You know, maybe they got a little better, but now they're the same. And, but we have over a hundred thousand, I think it's over a hundred thousand people. No, not a hundred thousand, over a hundred million people, I think on a statin. And there's one in four people over the age of 40 are on a statin. So mm -hmm. all these people are on a statin, but still is, heart attacks is the number one cause of the number one killer. So the question is, is it that the statins aren't working? Is it, would it be worse if it wasn't for statins? So what is going on? Why are so many people still dying of heart attacks, even though we tell them to go on a statin, to eat a low-fat diet, to exercise more, eat less, but they're still dying? Yeah, so great question. Uh, and uh, Dr. Kenobi, uh, uh, I agree. Uh, actually, people may notice his book uh, just above my uh, shoulder there. Oh, there it is. Uh, yep, The Ancestral Health uh uh, revolution, the ancestral diet revolution. Uh, and, you know, he talks about these oils, which may be a major factor. So, you know, to go back a little bit, um, you know, early 1900s, uh, we have reports from the leading physicians of the time. Uh, and, you know, of the cases, the types of diseases that they were seeing. And you're right, heart disease is a rare occurrence, virtually undescribed. And many of the leading physicians of the day uh, would go their entire career without seeing a case of, you know, uh, heart disease of angina, as, uh, you know, it was oftentimes, oftentimes is referred to. And, you know, throughout the early 1900s, um, we start to see the incidence of heart disease rising. And 1950s is when this really came to a head, uh, especially when uh, Dwight Eisenhower, our sitting president, has a heart attack while in office. Uh, and so, you know, this sets off the alarm bells appropriately so, and people start asking, why are we having so much heart disease? And, you know, there were two uh, theories at the time that were kind of being worked out by scientists. Uh, you know, it was recognized that it's probably related to things that we're eating for the most part. And one theory was that it was the fat that we were eating, specifically the saturated fat and the dietary cholesterol. And this is what's called the, you know, the diet heart hypothesis, that when we eat cholesterol and saturated fat, our blood cholesterol levels increase, and those increased blood cholesterol levels then are what lead to heart disease. And so if we could lower our blood cholesterol levels, initially by changing the food that we were eating, and then later on with pharmaceutical interventions like statin drugs, um, that that should obviate, you know, heart disease, that should greatly reduce the risk of heart disease. Um, and, you know, the second theory at the time, uh, just to point out, uh, was that it was basically the sugar that we were eating, uh, and highly processed carbohydrates and sugar, 
that were leading to heart disease. And for various reasons that are not all scientific based, I'll say, uh, the diet heart hypothesis won out. And you know this led us down a pathway that uh, really culminated first in about 1980 when the first version of the US dietary guidelines came out. And it was basically recommended that we remove fat from the diet as much as possible. And then, you know, later on, uh, late 1980s, early 1990s, statin medications uh, uh, got developed and released and um, rapidly became the most widely prescribed class of medications. Uh, as you now, as you mentioned, you know, it's now a very high percentage of people that are on this. And it, when you look at the incidence of heart disease from 1980 to today, so 50 years, Basically, it has not changed. Um, there was a little bit of a decrease initially, uh, really starting late 1980s, early 1990s. Uh, and then since 2000, the incidence has leveled off. And actually, in the past five years, the incidence is going up dramatically again. Um, and so, you know, like you said, it really doesn't make sense that we're eating less fat. And again, our dietary data shows that we're eating less saturated fat. Consumption of red meat, for instance, uh, in the United States between 1950 and today is down by 40%. Um, our cholesterol levels are lower because of the medications and because of this uh, low-fat dietary approach. And yet heart disease is not going away. And those are the types of things that have caused me and many others to step back and say, maybe we got something wrong. Maybe it wasn't the cholesterol and the fat in the first place. And maybe this whole approach needs to be changed. I want to ask you, does our body make cholesterol to try to kill us? Um, clearly not. So cholesterol uh, is an essential uh, part of our bodies, you know, it, it, you literally could not survive without cholesterol. Cholesterol <clears throat> makes up uh, our cell walls. It's actually what holds us together. Uh, cholesterol is a precursor for many vital uh, hormones, like our sex hormones, um, you know, vitamin D. Uh, these are all things that actually are come from cholesterol. Uh, so cholesterol clearly isn't around just to kill us. And the concept that somehow this substance that has been in our body, our entire existence as human beings, started causing us problems in the last hundred years, all of a sudden, uh, really doesn't make sense when we stop, when we step back and think about it. Uh, but the narrative around cholesterol has been built so strongly. And like I said, this isn't really only a scientific issue. This gets into politics. This gets into our food supply. This gets into the, the, you know, the business of pharmaceuticals. Uh, and all of these forces uh, have basically shoved this narrative uh, down the throat of both physicians and patients. And, you know, we're at a point now where it becomes hard to even question that narrative because it is so well entrenched. So, so people don't realize that HDL and LDL, they're not cholesterol, they're carriers. 
their carrier molecule carrier molecules for different things, including cholesterol. And uh, so when we look at HDL, we look at LDL, and it's carrying the cholesterol to the places and the fats that we need it. Make the distinction between these lipoproteins that are carrying the cholesterol and cholesterol and fat itself. Yeah. So like you said, uh, HDL, LDL, uh, which are, you know, kind of the common uh, things that doctors test and talk to patients about uh, are not actually cholesterol. They are the proteins that carry cholesterol around in your bloodstream. Uh, so cholesterol, you know, is a fatty substance. It is made up of fatty acids. And anyone who has tried to, you know, put oil in water knows that they don't mix. Uh, so in order to traffic this, these cholesterol particles through our bloodstream, which is mostly water, um, they need to be uh, basically encased, they need to be carried uh, with these lipoproteins, these proteins that then can make the cholesterol actually dissolvable in our blood so it can be transported around. Um, but, you know, when we're measuring HDL and LDL in our bloodstream, we're only seeing the cholesterol particles uh, that are being carried in our bloodstream. And it turns out that that's actually a very small percentage of the cholesterol that is in our body. Uh, most of the cholesterol in our body, like I said, is making up your cells. Um, your brain, for instance, is about 70 to 80% cholesterol. Uh, you know, that, uh, that's, you know, in the structure of your brain. And so, you know, we're really getting a very small, uh, subset of our body's cholesterol when we are, when we are taking these blood tests that we use, uh, to, uh, measure, you know, what most doctors understand as cholesterol and most patients understand as cholesterol. Um, you know, what's interesting is when we go back through the sort of history of the diet heart hypothesis and some of the data that has been put forward uh, to support that hypothesis, we see some very interesting conundrums. Uh, so for instance, you know, the Framingham study, which was one of the seminal studies when it comes to uh, heart disease, um, found that total cholesterol, so before uh, again, when we go back and we didn't really have the advanced lab techniques that we have today, uh, and at first we weren't even able to differentiate LDL and HDL cholesterol, we just measured total cholesterol levels. And so when you go to the early Framingham data, uh, what you find is that only when total cholesterol got pretty high, uh, above 300 milligrams per deciliter, which is the units that we use here in the US, um, was there any indication that heart disease risk was increased? And it turns out that most people um, with a fasting total cholesterol level of above 300 uh, probably have genetic mutations, something called familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, and familial hypercholesterolemia doesn't just cause our cholesterol to be increased, it actually has a host of other um, implications, uh, most notably for the relevance of heart disease, it tends to affect the blood clotting system. 
and it makes people that are uh, with FH uh, more prone to blood clots. And blood clots, it turns out, are an important part of this uh, atherosclerotic plaque buildup. Uh, so, you know, that was a kind of misinterpretation of some of the data uh, originally that led us down this pathway. And even today, we see that when you uh, can separate out the effects of um, inflammation, uh, diabetes, and the earlier steps in that process, what we call insulin resistance, that is really what seems to be driving heart disease risk. And it's only insulin resistance and the effects that it then has on your cholesterol particles essentially to damage those cholesterol particles uh, that leads us to a place where cholesterol is involved uh, with the development of heart disease. And I know that kind of got very uh, complex, so we can uh, kind of go through that and break it down a little bit more. And we definitely are going to go through that. Um, Michael DeBakey, who is a famous mm -hmm. cardiac surgeon, I'm, I'm sure, I don't know, you might have even known him. I think he passed away. He said that cholesterol and has no correlation with heart disease. Uh, would you agree with that? Um, it's sort of. Uh, so, you know, the way that I explain it to people is, yes, cholesterol is part of the process that leads to heart disease, but it's not the cholesterol that starts the process. And um, it's not all cholesterol that participates in that process. It is only really damaged cholesterol particles that participate in the process of heart disease. And in order to start that process, you need to have damage to your blood vessels uh, to start with. Because think about it this way, cholesterol is always in our bloodstream. Again, essential to life uh, that we you know, can move cholesterol throughout our bloodstream. And cholesterol is in our bloodstream from birth until death. Uh, so why is it only, you know, later in life that we start to see these problems occur? If it was really a, you know, a concentration of cholesterol issue, uh, then, you know, it should be pretty straightforward uh, to figure out who gets heart disease and who doesn't. Uh, but it's not that straightforward. And it's not that straightforward in both directions. So some of the observations that I and many others have made are that people who develop heart disease may or may not have high cholesterol. And in fact, there were large studies done, um, you know, again, in the 1970s, 1980s, uh, that showed that half of the patients who came into a hospital with heart attacks uh, did not have elevated cholesterol levels. Um, and we continue to see this today. Uh, you know, one of the observations that I see as a heart surgeon today is that most of the patients who end up on my operating table uh, actually don't have high cholesterol. Uh, many of them are on medications to lower their cholesterol. Others, you know, just for whatever reason, have low cholesterol levels, and yet they end up with heart disease. And to the flip side, we also are aware of many, many people who have what are considered high cholesterol levels and yet they never develop heart disease. Uh, so it's clear that cholesterol, while it might be a part of the process, certainly doesn't explain it all. And uh, I believe it really shouldn't be our primary focus 
if we're talking about preventing and treating heart disease. MacuHealth, your science-born and tested solutions for visual performance, macular degeneration, and dry eye syndrome. New products coming soon. Embrace the science. One thing also about cholesterol, it's part of the immune system, and it, it attacks viruses. So we're lowering cholesterol too low, especially uh, with, with many viruses circulating around that have been dangerous recently. Does that become an issue? Yeah, it certainly does. You know, when you look at data uh, on people with low cholesterol levels, uh, what you see are increases in infections and increases in cancer uh, in those people. Because again, cholesterol plays an important part in the immune system overall and kind of in the uh, surveillance of fighting infections and then fighting, uh, you know, cells that become uh, cancerous. You have a level that since we bring that up that you think cholesterol should be at total cholesterol. And we're going to get in cal into the calcium scores and all that in a little bit. But if someone has had uh, someone has a cholesterol, uh, total cholesterol of 100, is that way too low to be able to protect you? Should it be around 150? Should it be 180? Should it be 200? Is there a number for primary prevention? Let's say prime person hasn't had any issue, they haven't had, they're not at risk for a stroke, or they haven't had a stroke or a heart attack, or they never had an event. So for primary prevention, the average Joe, what do you think would be a good cholesterol? Or let's say for you, what do you, what would you want your cholesterol at? Yeah, so, um, you know, two, two points, I guess I would make here. Uh, number one is, as I said earlier, I think the amount of cholesterol is the wrong focus. I think we really need to be focused on the quality of the cholesterol that we have. Uh, because, you know, there's basically good quality cholesterol and bad quality cholesterol. And it's not, you know, kind of what we've heard that all LDL is bad and all HDL is good. Uh, but there are quality differentiators that we can look at uh, to determine, you know, what your cholesterol quality is like. And that, I think, is a, a much more important focus. In terms of the amount of total cholesterol, it's interesting. Uh, when you look at studies on large populations, um, we find uh, that there's basically what we call in medicine a U-shaped curve, uh, which means at the low end, you know, mortality goes up, and at the high end, mortality goes up. And the bottom of that U where mortality is lowest is actually somewhere in the total cholesterol range between about 160 and up to about 200, 220 uh, milligrams per deciliter uh, of uh, total cholesterol. Um, now, most people are, are more attuned uh, and their doctor is probably going to be talking to them specifically about their LDL cholesterol level. And again, that gets into a whole nother uh, discussion about whether LDL is a better uh, marker than total cholesterol. Uh, but um, certainly we know that on the low end, you know, when you start getting total cholesterol levels, you know, 100, uh, we see that, you know, there's actually a significant increase. And it's interesting because the the sort of slope of that curve uh, is more severe on the low end than on the high end. 
so like I said earlier, you know, you really only start to see significant increases in heart disease uh, when you get a total cholesterol level above about 300. Um, you know, from 200 to 300, there's slight increases, but from 100 and below, it's actually a very severe increase in that curve. So, and you talked about quality of cholesterol, and we're going to talk about fractionating cholesterol, particle size, particle number. Uh, and I, I think, you know, and I think that's really interesting, but let's talk about secondary prevention for a second. Somebody who already had a heart attack, somebody who had, you know, had to have stents, uh, is that, are those cholesterol numbers that you just gave, is it different for them? Should they be lower? Uh, you know, I know we're talking, we have to talk about particle size and it's the same yeah. answer, it has to be the quality. But say, most likely, if they've had a stent or, you know, they've had a heart attack, that means that they're insulin resistant and their quality of their cholesterol probably isn't good, not because of the cholesterol, but because of being insulin resistant, which is the cause of all this, and which we're going to get into that. But do you, do you look at things differently for somebody who's had an event? Well, so ultimately, you know, for someone who has had a cardiac event, like you said, you know, my focus is what is the root cause of that event? And, you know, it is clear to me and it is clear from the data that we have that cholesterol is not the root cause. So focusing on the cholesterol and just trying to manage this by lowering the cholesterol, um, I argue is going to be ineffective and um, really shouldn't be our focus. And we need to get to that root cause level, uh, which most of the time is insulin resistance. Uh, so, um, you know, it, what I tell people is if you're not going to address your insulin resistance and the underlying root cause, then yeah, there's probably a small benefit to lowering your cholesterol level. But understand that that benefit is much smaller than we have been led to believe. Um, there are side effects of being on these medications for long periods of time that we need to acknowledge. Uh, and, you know, we're failing to address the root cause. Uh, so, you know, that treatment by definition is going to be ineffective. And, I, you know, and we're going to talk a lot about that, but I do so many people are on statins, you know, a quarter of the population over 40, the number needed to treat with a mm -hmm. statin is 89 people. Can you explain what the number needed to treat of 89 people actually means for the people that are listening? Yeah, so when we look at any treatment, medications, surgery, um, you know, dietary interventions, um, we uh, the number needed to treat is basically how many people do we need to treat with a certain intervention uh, to, you know, prevent whatever the outcome that we're trying to avoid is. Uh, so specifically, when we're looking at statins and uh, the numbers that you quote uh, are related to primary prevention. So these are people who have not had a heart attack, um, have not had a cardiac event, and we're trying to prevent them from having a heart attack or a cardiac event um, by treating them with statin medications. And depending on the study that you look at, um, you know, that number is somewhere around one in uh, 80 or 90, like you said. Some studies actually suggest it to be even higher than that. But what that means is that out of every, let's say, 80 people who get treated with a statin, one of them 
is going to avoid a heart attack. 79 are not. They're going to get no benefit from being on that medication. Um, and, you know, you may say, okay, well, we prevented that one person from having a heart attack, but we have to take into account that those other 79 people are being exposed to all the potential side effects of being on that statin without any benefit to their health. Uh, and to me, that that's unacceptable. Um, we need to do a better job of figuring out, you know, who is actually going to benefit. I mean, if I did surgery on 80 people and only one of them got benefit from that surgery, that's going to be a major problem. Uh, and so I think statins for primary prevention and one in 80 is actually the best data we have for statins. Like I said, many studies would suggest that this number is actually much higher than that. Uh, one in 80, I think, is not a very good, uh, you know, odds. And we, you know, the message around statins to physicians and to the general public is that these are miracle drugs and they're helping everyone who gets put on them. And, you know, many people have had the experience of going to their primary care doctor or to their cardiologist. And they're being told that statins are the treatment that will prevent them from having heart disease. And, you know, uh, that is very problematic to me because that's clearly not what the evidence shows us. Yeah, I mean, one in four people over 40 are on a statin and, and one in five people die of a heart attack. So clearly, some, so there is a disconnect there. And I want to bring up the all-hat trial because in the all-hat trial, if I, if I understand this right, is that people that are on uh, for primary prevention for cardiovascular disease, the lower your cholesterol is, the greater your mortality is. Uh, so if you're over 65, there was an 18% increase in mortality and over 75, a 34% increase in mortality if you lowered your cholesterol too much when you're an older person, especially I think it's even more in females. Now, do I have that right? Or uh, could you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah. So, and again, this gets into what we were talking about earlier uh, of, you know, when you lower cholesterol, yes, you might prevent some heart uh, disease deaths, uh, but you're opening up patients to other problems like the infections and like the uh, cancer that we talked about. Um, another you know, concerning thing we see around long-term use of statins is that the rates of diabetes uh, start to increase uh, the longer that you've been on a statin. And we know that diabetes is a major risk factor for the development of heart disease. So, you know, how much of the potential benefits of lowering your cholesterol is being undone by the fact that we've now made you diabetic uh, that's going to be, uh, you know, causing you bigger problems. So um, all hat, I would say, is one of the many statin trials uh, that really should raise alarm about these medications. Uh, but, you know, it's real interesting how these things get kind of spun uh, by the pharmaceutical industry. And uh, even, you know, when you read some of the publications uh, that came out of all hat, uh, you know, they would still are used to support the use of statins, despite some of the troublesome uh, kind of uh, data points, uh, like the ones that you point out. And, and you mentioned before about 
uh, they, there's a possible increased risk of cancer if you would with people in the statin group, especially in the in the elderly in the Prosper trial. So there was increase in cancer, increase in stroke, but maybe a slight decrease in heart attacks. And uh, you know, I I just I just you know I think it's so confusing for the public to really wrap their head around this because every time you go and get a blood test, they if your cholesterol is anywhere near, near two hundred. Even if you've never had an event, they want to put you on a statin one, two, three without doing a calcium score. And we're going to talk about the calcium score going forward. And if you have a comment on anything I just said. Yeah, you know, the only thing I, I will point out uh, just, uh, you know, for sort of accuracy's sake is the all hat study um, wasn't actually looking at statins primarily. Um, the all hat study was a study of high blood pressure medications and trying to figure out which ones. Uh, might be better, uh, you know, in terms of prevention of heart disease. But then, like you said, one of the sort of analyses that was done on it uh, bought out this uh, this um, uh, discordant data around cholesterol levels and heart disease outcomes. Uh, so just uh, just to make that clear, it wasn't actually a trial of statin medications, but uh, many of the other statin medication trials uh, have. Uh, had similar results where basically um, there's no relationship between the degree of cholesterol lowering from the medications and the heart disease outcomes. Uh, and um, so that is one of the many things that uh, gives me pause uh, in terms of relying on statins to prevent uh, and treat heart disease. And we're going to go over Dr. Ovedia's plan as we go forward, but we're just going through some of the background. Now, in the news, there's been a new medication. Uh, I don't know how new the medication, but it's been in the news. Next, Nexlitol or mm -hmm. benzoic acid as yep. far as possibly decreasing risk of death from a heart attack. And I wanted to know if what you feel about that medication and is there any, is there any, traction to it. Yeah, so we now have a number of medications that have come on the market uh, as sort of alternatives and or add-ons for statin medications. And it's interesting, you know, because again, for 20 plus years, the narrative has been that, you know, statins are the solution to heart disease. And, you know, I think as everyone has become more aware, uh, you know, more aware that statins aren't eliminating heart disease, there are, um, you know, two scenarios now that have been focused on, uh, two messages that have come largely from the pharmaceutical industry. And one is that maybe statins aren't powerful enough. Maybe we need to lower cholesterol even more. And we can do that either by adding medications or using other medications. So, you know, PCSK9 inhibitors are going to be another uh, class of medications that are more recently introduced, and they lower cholesterol levels even more than statins do. And again, the, the, the theory here is that that's what's going to finally allow us to, um, you know, have a meaningful impact on heart disease. And then there are medications that can be added to statins or medications that can be used for the many, many people who try to take statins 
and the side effects are too severe for them to continue taking them. Uh, so Nextalol bempedoic acid uh, is one of those medications uh, that has now been um, promoted and, and the recent trial uh, showed that it may do better at lowering cholesterol uh, in people who are intolerant of statins and or as an additive to a statin to lower people's cholesterol levels even more. Now, what gets interesting is that you know, these newer medications that are coming online, oftentimes the trials done around them are only done to show that they lower people's cholesterol levels. Uh, we've basically stopped testing whether these medications actually prevent heart attack and extend people's lives, because now it's just assumed that as long as the medication is lowering your cholesterol level, it's going to have those effects. And again, I step back and say, that's probably not an assumption that we should be making. Thank you for clarifying that. I, I got to ask you about uh, Zetia. You know, that's become real popular now. Yeah. Uh, Vitorin, which was a combination of Zetia and Simbisatin, which is Zocor, uh, that was tried and it showed that it failed the trial, uh, if I'm correct, and you correct yep. me on that. But now the doctors are pushing Zetia again with statins, but Vitorin failed. Could you explain that thinking there? Yeah. So again, Zetia, uh, Zetamide is another uh, medication that has been uh, promoted to, you know, assist statins in lowering cholesterol even more, or for people who are intolerant of statins. And um, I would say the trial of data uh, around these have been disappointing. Uh, the, the combination pill that you mentioned, combining Zetia with a statin, uh, really showed no uh, no significant uh, benefits, and and it, it's still on the market, but really doesn't get used anymore. Um, and we we now have, you know, we're we're three decades into this basically, uh, and we're really five decades into the focus on cholesterol as the primary cause of heart disease, and ultimately we are not seeing an impact. Um, and you know. Again, the the societies that push these messages, like the American Heart Association, um, will say that, well, people aren't following the advice well enough, and they'll blame the patients, essentially. But we have the data to show that, you know, on a societal level, uh, our cholesterol levels are lower than they've ever been. You know, one very interesting study that came out, um, this is just in the past few months, um, the the major lab testing companies uh, worldwide have a uh, sort of cooperative, and they published a study uh, a few months ago looking at cholesterol levels, um, you know, around the world. Uh, and the U.S. it turned out had one of the lowest levels of cholesterol of any countries, you know, around the world. When we look at this on a society, on a you know nationwide level, and yet we have the highest incidence of heart disease. Uh, so, you know, again, just another data point that shows us that cholesterol is the wrong focus uh, if we're really, uh, you know, if, if heart disease is what we're worried about. Dr. Ovedia, thank you for letting me beat that horse for my audience. I want to talk about genetics. Our genetics really haven't changed that much over the last hundred years. So is genetics the cause of heart disease? 
No, I think genetics play a very small role uh, in the uh, etiology of heart disease. You know, it's interesting. We look at um, the fact that heart disease seems to run in families and we blame that on genetics. Uh, but we need to acknowledge that, you know, besides our genes, uh, the other things that get passed uh, down in families are our habits. Uh, we tend to eat the same ways and we tend to have the same, uh, you know, habits. Uh, so I would say that those habits are probably a much more powerful factor uh, in heart disease. Now, you know, we did mention earlier uh, a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia. And these are people that do have actual genetic abnormalities that uh, make their cholesterol levels uh, be significantly higher. And these people are at increased risk for heart disease. But like I said, they also have abnormalities in their blood clotting system. And what's real interesting about the familial hypercholesterolemia population is, um, yes, there is a certain subset of that population that gets early onset, accelerated development of heart disease. They develop heart disease in their 20s, 30s, and 40s. Um, but the people who don't, uh, the people with familial hypercholesterolemia that don't develop early heart disease, and let's say they make it to their 50s without developing heart disease, they actually have a normal lifespan beyond that. And they don't end up developing kind of the more typical late onset, despite the fact that their cholesterol level is over 300 their entire lives, um, you know, when it goes untreated. Uh, so, you know, again, even within that data, we see some interesting conundrums about this theory that it is cholesterol and cholesterol only that is driving heart disease. So there's been new research uh, in 2016, there was a study that showed that 12% of Americans are metabolically healthy. I think there's been a recent study, it's, now it's down to 10% are metabolically healthy. So uh, let's talk about the real cause of cardiovascular disease, uh, metabolic health. If you could talk about that. Yeah. Great, uh, uh, great uh, intro there. And as you said, the statistics around metabolic health are quite scary. And we have recent uh, data now showing that under 10% of the adults in the United States are actually metabolically healthy. And what metabolic health basically means is that your body is properly utilizing the inputs that you are giving it. And that primary input is the food that we are eating. Um, from a practical standpoint, we can look at five basic metrics to determine if people are metabolically healthy or not. And, um, you know, one of the key takeaways that I hope people get from this podcast is remember these five metrics. And if you don't know them, go figure out what they are, uh, because they're actually very easy to, um, you know, to measure. Um, the first is going to be your waist circumference. Uh, so not your weight, but your waist circumference. And this is something you can measure at home. You just take a tape measure. Uh, you go just above the level of your belly button. Measure it first thing in the morning. And if you're a man, that should be less than 40 inches. And if you're a woman, it should be less than 35 inches. Uh, the second measure we're going to look at is your blood pressure. Again, you can measure this at home. Almost every time you go to the uh, physician's office, you're going to get it checked. Uh, you know, you can measure it at most grocery stores and pharmacies these days. 
And your goal is for your blood pressure to be less than 130 over 85. So both of those need to be lower. And that needs to be without the use of medications. If you've been diagnosed with high blood pressure, if you've been started on medication to lower your blood pressure, that is one of the early indicators of poor metabolic health and metabolic dysfunction. And then the other three okay, measures are- If I could interrupt you for a sure second. Thing. With waist circumference before we get to the next one. 40 for a man is pretty, that's pretty liberal, 40 inches, isn't it? Yeah, the, these, all of these cutoffs, I'm gonna you know, tell people, I think are more generous than they should be. Uh, but these are the ones that we have. And just even using these generous cutoffs, we still find that less than 10% of, of adults can meet these measurements. So uh, I wouldn't say these are optimal numbers, but these are sort of, uh, you know, what are defined as, as uh, the cutoff for when you have the overt disease uh, present. Uh, so, you know, the other three are going to be coming from basic blood work that you're going to get done. Uh, most physicians check this as part of, you know, a routine exam. And we're going to look at your fasting blood glucose level. Uh, and we want that to be less than 100 milligrams per deciliter here in the U.S. units. Um, and then we're going to look at your cholesterol panel. But interestingly, we're not going to look at that LDL cholesterol number that your doctor is so focused on. We're looking at the other two numbers that are on there, your HDL cholesterol, the so-called good cholesterol. And we call HDL cholesterol good cholesterol because it turns out that having a higher number here is better. Uh, again, this can be confusing to people because they've always heard you need to have lower cholesterol. But when it comes to your HDL uh, particles, uh, we want them to be higher. And specifically, if you're a man, you want those to be over 40. If you're a woman, you want them to be over 50. And then we're going to look at your triglycerides. Triglycerides, you do want to be lower, and you want these to be less than 150 milligrams per deciliter. So you look at those five measures um, and, you know, the two largest studies we have that have recently looked at this show that somewhere between um, 88 to 94 percent of people in the U.S., adults in the U.S., could not meet all five measures of optimal metabolic health. Um, if three or more of those are outside those healthy ranges that I just mentioned, um, that is actually diagnoses you with metabolic syndrome, we call it. It's a medical diagnosis. And what it means is that you are at very increased risk of developing things like heart disease, but also things like cancer, Alzheimer's disease. And it turns out that if we go down the list of the top 10 causes of death in the United States every year, eight out of the 10 of them are attributable to the metabolic syndrome. So when we address metabolic dysfunction, um, what's so powerful about it is we're not only helping you to prevent and lower your risk of heart disease, we're actually helping you to prevent and lower your risk of most of the chronic diseases that end up killing people. You know, in my office, you know, I'm an eye doctor, not a cardiologist, but I see a lot of people from India and they have what we call skinny fat, mm -hmm. thin they kind of have a big belly, no butt. Are they? And you talked about this in your book about skinny fat. Can you explain about that as, as that being a risk factor? Yeah. So 
you know, um, this uh, so-called skinny fat or, you know, central obesity, as it's oftentimes uh, referred to. Um, and what that is, is that, you know, the person may not be obese in their arms and in their legs, but they're obese in their abdomens. Uh, and this is why waist circumference is a better metric of health than weight is, um, because you could be, you know, a normal weight, essentially, uh, but you're carrying all your obesity in your waist. And specifically, what's concerning about that is it's actually the fat on the inside, the fat that's around your organs, what we call visceral fat or visceral adipose tissue, uh, that is most concerning, most damaging when it comes to your metabolic health. Um, Indians, uh, Asians in particular, are prone to this. You know, it turns out that Caucasians, people in the U.S., uh, we get fat on the outside first. Uh, so we develop, you know, mostly what we call subcutaneous fat, uh, which is kind of the fat that you can pinch and, you know, it's all around. And in some ways, that's a little bit protective uh, because it's kind of a buffer against metabolic disease. But when that gets excessive, uh, it's going to, uh, you know, ultimately uh contribute to metabolic disease as well. But the fat on the inside, the fat around our organs, especially in our belly, uh, is what is most uh, concerning when it comes to metabolic health. And that's why this, you know, condition of skinny fat uh, is uh, such a problem. And I, and I think people don't realize when you have that big belly, or you, your skinny fat, your body is very inflamed and inflammation being the core component of chronic disease. And can you talk about the belly being like an endocrine gland and yeah. causing inflammation? Yeah. So it turns out that that fat, um, you know, fat, uh, we think of it, most people think of fat as just uh, a storage uh, place. Uh, but fat is actually, like you said, an endocrine organ. Uh, it does secrete hormones uh, and uh, cytokines, uh, which are part of that inflammatory pathway. And uh, the visceral fat in particular, uh, you know, def uh, secretes cytokines and hormones uh, that end up, you know, having a host of downstream effects uh, that are part of this process of metabolic disease and part of this process of insulin resistance. Uh, so, you know, the, the difficulty uh, around visceral fat has been uh, that we don't have great ways of measuring it. Uh, you know, so we use these indirect markers. So when we go back to those metabolic health criteria, it turns out that, you know, if your triglycerides are high and your HDL cholesterol is low, uh, that is a pretty good indirect indicator that you are insulin resistant and you have metabolic dysfunction. Now, um, when okay. we talk about, and then when we talk about the blood glucose level, you know, that ends up being uh, sort of a late indicator. Uh, but, you know, by the time your blood glucose starts to elevate, that means that you've probably been insulin resistant and in metabolic dysfunction for many, many years. Uh, so these, this is why, you know, these metrics are so predictive of these, uh, of our health. 
And I think there was a study that showed that two thirds of the people who were having a heart attack had elevated pre had elevated blood sugar and they didn't even know it. Yeah, it's actually worse than that. Uh, so when you actually uh, test for insulin resistance very well, and insulin resistance truly is the the first thing that happens. You know, getting an elevated blood sugar is a late finding. Uh, but when you test for insulin resistance in people who are coming in with heart disease, and this data comes from uh, Dr. Gerald Reven, uh, who did really the seminal work in this area in the 1970s, 1980s, 1990s, and he showed that up to 95% of people prevent, uh, presenting with heart attacks are insulin resistant if you measure it the right way. So, you know... I, my understanding is that insulin could be high for up to 20 years before even your blood sugar goes up and high insulin in the body could cause the same problems as high blood sugar. So are you a proponent of testing fasting insulin or even two hour insulin? Yeah, very much so. So, um, like I said, you know, when you really look at the data, it is clear that insulin resistance is the primary root cause of heart disease. And that's what we should be testing for. And so fasting insulin level is a great way to do that. Um, there are some more advanced tests that can be done as well to determine if you are insulin resistant. But if we just started with a fasting insulin level, uh, that would you know, detect a lot of these problems a lot earlier uh, than what we do today, which is usually wait for people's blood sugars to elevate. And as you said, you know, it can be a decade or two uh, of having elevated insulin levels before we get to the point that our blood sugar level will actually increase. And if we figure that out early, you know, when the insulin is elevated, but the blood sugar hasn't elevated yet, uh, we could have a much greater impact by helping people to reverse that process and um, talking about the ways that we can reverse that process of high insulin and insulin resistance. You know, we did a paper in 2016 that we published about insulin resistance and the capillaries in the, in the eye. And we found that if they had microaneurysms, either they're fasting, it correlated very well with either fasting insulin or two hour insulin even before their blood sugar went up. So this was a way to be able to put them on a program like yours. People go get Dr. Ovedia's book, Stay Off My Operating Table. And we're going to go into the diet in a little bit, but we could actually see these little microaneurysms in the eye. And it's all based on, you know, uh, work that has been done over the years. I remember sitting in, in a Mark Houston uh, lecture for hours and listening to vascular disease. And that's how we were able to discover it. Your eyes and your vision are under attack, damaging blue light from the sun. Your phone, your computer, your tablet, even light bulbs and car headlights is constantly bombarding you. The good news is our eyes actually already have a line of defense to counter the effects of blue light. This defense is made up of three pigments called carotenoids. MacuHealth with Micromycel, the only supplement with the exclusive patent on all three macular carotenoids and Micromycel technology. 
Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. OIE Broadcasting is the emerging leader in social media. We use scientific entertainment to drive more patients into your office. Visit OIEbroadcasting.com and sign up today.